Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. My name is Molly Hooper, a longtime Capitol Hill reporter, and I'm taking you off camera, beyond the halls of Congress, to hear my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, the House, and behind the scenes. On today's episode, I talk with Peter Welch, who represents Vermont, full stop. He is a House delegation of one. Welch was one of Nancy Pelosi's Democratic majority makers who helped regain control of the House from Republicans back in 2006. And even though Welch is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, he is known for working across the aisle with Republicans on some pretty thorny issues like energy conservation. You will hear more about one such effort at outreach that landed him 1,000 feet underground in a coal mine. And if you do enjoy what you hear, please share Article 1 with a friend or colleague and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on to the conversation. Mr. Welch, are you there? I'm here. Oh my gosh, look at that view! For for my listeners who don't see, Mr. Welch is in front of this beauteous um, landscape behind him with rolling hills and green, and and it looks like the leaves have fallen off some of the trees. Where are you exactly? It's a place called Vermont. (laughs) Your district, right? That's right. Actually, let me start off with that. What is it like to be a congressional delegation with a membership of one, in the House, at least? You know, it's... It's, it's in fact pretty nice uh, because I'm the voice for Vermont in Congress. And, uh, you know, I have colleagues from six other states where uh, there's only one representative. Uh, and I think all of us have, feel a pretty special connection to the people we represent because it's not divided into several districts. And we are the voice for Vermont in Congress. So it's a very, very nice feeling. Does that mean you have sort of a, a, more, a more closely held relationship with your senators? Because you have some senior senators in your delegation, Pat Leahy, of course, and of course, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I mean, do you get together on a regular basis? Are, are they sort of the people you consult when you're dealing with issues related to the state, obviously? Well, yeah, no, we're, we're actually all pretty close. And we don't have formal meetings, but we'll be on the plane together or we'll be at common events in Vermont together. So we're constantly running into each other and you know we're texting buddies as well. So uh, yeah, we've been close and our staffs work very closely together. And we do that on, on casework even. Well, you know, uh, I'll take the lead on something, Bernie will take it on another and Patrick on another. So we're pretty close mm-hmm. and we do see each other quite a bit. And we get along. Well, that actually is the most important thing, because not all congressional delegations do get along. (laughs) Right. And actually, on that note, you know, looking at the election results over this past few days and how the Senate has fared or will fare, we don't know at this point, um, and how the House has fared, what have you guys been saying about the legislative outlook for your delegation and for your state next year and the year after? Well, of course, our delegation has been the same. Uh, I was the only one who was up for re-election this time, but it, it's a very interesting election nationally and also in Vermont. I mean, nationally, obviously, the really big news was uh, Joe Biden uh, being the president-elect, um, and that's a huge relief for those of us who were uh, supporting him. And uh, he, he, so that's the biggest news. The other news is that uh, we really have a divided Congress again. 
I mean, the uh, Democrats, we had hoped to pick up uh, some seats in the House and we lost some seats in the House. And in the Senate, the outcome is going to come down to what happens in Georgia in the beginning of January. Uh, but even if the Democrats are successful, it's going to be 50-50 at that point with the tiebreaker going to uh, Vice President Harris. So the bottom line here is that a lot of folks wanted a President Biden, uh, but they, in many districts, voted for the Republican candidates. Vermont is really unique because Joe Biden uh, was incredibly popular here in Vermont, but hundreds of thousands of people who voted for Democrat Joe Biden voted for Phil Scott, Republican governor. Exactly. And Phil Scott got the most votes of anybody in the entire state. So what you're seeing is people here, particularly in Vermont, making um, an evaluation clearly on the basis of the individual. They like Biden and they like Scott. They like the Democrat and they like the Republican. So, you know, obviously that's a message to us that if there's any possible way for us to work together, uh, we should and must. Well, you know, something that I just was reading to Lincoln, um, I was looking at the um, politics, the American politics almanac, essentially from last year, the 2018. And, and something, one way they described you was um, you're known for your legislative skill, which features an understated and collegial style. Here's somebody who, in interviews that I've done over these past few weeks, has been pointed to as an individual who likes to get along with your colleagues, well, collegial style, and you also work across party lines. Tell me a little bit about that. How do you do that in what seems like such a divided Congress, or even among members of your own delegation right now, we're seeing reports of this schism and divide in the Democratic caucus. Okay, that's fine, but you still have to get things done. How do you do that? Well, you know, I grew up in a family with uh, three brothers and two sisters, uh, so we had to find ways to manage <laughs> and get along. Uh, that helped. Uh, but, you know, there's also a Vermont tradition here. Uh, you know, I was uh, a minority leader in the, in the state house, and then I became the Senate president, so I was, you know, the effective minority and majority. So I've been on both sides. Mm -hmm. In my first experience in politics, uh, when I went to the state Senate, I won an upset election. And it was a strongly Republican Senate uh, at the time. And uh, well, I wanted to get on the Finance Committee, which was a real big reach for a new member. And I, and, uh, I remember the leaders of the Senate, who were Republicans, I thought would resist it. And they said, sure, Peter, you're on the committee. And all of a sudden, I realized, hey, I've got a seat at the table, and i got to decide whether to cooperate or just agitate. Right. So I was the beneficiary of people who focused on, hey, this person can offer something. And fast forward, I then became the leader of the Senate. Mm -hmm. And I did something that a lot of my colleagues in Washington really think is bizarre. I, I appointed Republicans among mostly Democrats, to be sure, uh, to chair some of our important committees. Wow. Including, I was the Senate president, uh, the now Republican Governor Scott was a member of the Senate. He and I served together there for some time. But I was part of appointing him to chair uh, a major committee, our institutions committee. So there's a there's a tradition here in Vermont that I'm part of, you know, and I benefited from, where you really do make an effort to work with your colleagues. And and sometimes you can agree on the vote. Sometimes you can't. Mm -hmm. But what we found is that where there is a genuine effort to hear the people you're working with, including the ones who you disagree with. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, there's some things you can include in the legislation that meets their concerns without compromising your own. 
So I think it's an effective way to proceed. And obviously, it's much tougher to do that in Washington than it is here in Vermont. Right. Uh, but Governor Scott definitely things that way. I mean, he got hundreds of thousands of votes for governor from people who voted for a Democratic presidential candidate. Right. Are you recommending that Speaker Pelosi appoint some Republicans to chair committees in the House? Ha ha. You know, it really wouldn't work there. No, it, it, it honestly wouldn't work there. Tell and, me why. Tell me why. Um, well, first of all, it's never been done there. Right. Um, so it would be awful hard to break that. Secondly, we're in this environment where particularly with our current pre- with current President Trump, mm-hmm. um, it, there's oftentimes a lot of loyalty tests there. Uh, there's There's got to be some leadership at the top where there's an effort to try to uh, find that common ground. Um, and, you know, a lot of one of the famous stories is Ronald Reagan, who famously got along with Tip O'Neill, even though they were real adversaries on public policy, like the Reagan tax cuts, like the Contra policy. But they ended up doing some good things, like in Central America, they did some good things with Ireland. So there was always a grounding in our leaders, which we need, where the bottom line here is you've got to make progress uh, for the people you represent in the country we all serve. And that's much more important than the political style. So Washington is tough now. I mean, we, you know, we have an outcome on the election where uh, you have the president not acknowledging what the outcome is, and you have fearful senators, including McConnell, uh, basically uh, exceeding to the president's position on this. So that, that just does not create the environment where there's a lot of opportunity for the uh, cooperation that we need. Now, having said that, this is really important. Mm-hmm. Once you get below like that presidential level, in lead, there's all kinds of room for us on committees uh, to work with one another. You know, I, I worked with Adam Kensinger uh, on the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, right. and David McKinley, uh, who's fantastic on energy efficiency uh, measures. And uh, I had a wonderful experience going to his district, staying at his house, and then going into a coal mine. He represents coal miners. Wow. We don't have any in Vermont. Right. But it's an enormously powerful experience for me, seeing these wonderful people who are doing a really hard job. David and I disagree about some issues, but we agree on energy efficiency. Right. And my trip, his invitation um, I think it really established that we both care about the workers, right. okay, and we're right. looking for different solutions. So when you get below that leadership level, there's enormous opportunity uh, for bipartisanship. And yeah, I think a lot of us would much prefer to find ways to work together because we know it's essential. And, and you know, bottom line here, too, if I got elected mm-hmm. and I'd like to have my members, my colleagues, respect the decisions Vermonters made for me to be their representative, don't I owe them the same respect? Their right. voters chose them, and therefore I'm showing deference to their voters by showing respect to the person they sent. And I think that goes a long way. You know, it's uh, it's much more fun to start out with mutual respect than it is with uh, 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 red versus blue. Just just for a second, tell me about that experience of going into a coal mine because personally. I'm from California. That doesn't mean anything. But it, to me, it seems like a very scary experience to go down deep into a coal mine. What was that like? Well, it was scary for me, but for the coal miners and for David, it wasn't. But I, I was a little nervous uh, because, I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, okay. And this is what day in and day out a lot of the coal miners do, and they're proud of it. But you get in this little elevator that's got like a chain link fence around it, uh-huh. and then you go deep down. At elevator, it goes very slowly Ooh. to about a thousand feet below the 
around. And then when you get down there, you get in one of those little coal cars and you're on this little railroad in effect. And we traveled for four and a half miles to the part of the seam of the coal mine, you know, a thousand feet below wow. where the miners were spending an eight hour shift uh, uh, tearing coal off the, the sea. And uh, they hazed me a little bit. I gave it a hard time for that because at one point we're in the coal mine, we're going uh, on that car and they stopped it and they turned off the headlamps um, on their helmets. And there's never been uh, a place so dark as uh, that. And if, I, I, I was scared. Yeah, and he's and he's like, now, now, Peter, how are you going to vote on that tax bill, Peter? How are you going to vote on that tax bill? No. <laughs> uh, whatever you say, Mr. McKinley, that's, that was the answer there. Whatever it takes. Um, but you know, the the part about it that was so extraordinary was to see and meet uh, these folks who were doing a really hard job, mm -hmm. uh, had immense pride. Uh, they were getting good pay, and they were taking care of their families. And we came out. And just, just to experience my, people who work so hard on a hard job that's important. And it reminded me of dairy farmers here in Vermont who work incredibly hard in difficult circumstances. Uh, in, in, when I was talking with the miners after they finished their shift, we had lunch together. They uh, I pointed out we didn't, they know I was from Vermont. I, I'm, you know, I'm a Green New Deal person. Right. right? That's not popular in coal country. No. But I said, you know, we don't have coal in Vermont, but we have electricity. And I thank them because they had kept the lights on in our barns and in our schools and in our homes for so long. And uh, so it, the opportunity I had to meet these really good people was very powerful for me. And I think it, it the benefit, too, was that it was a way of me expressing my appreciation for some of my colleagues who do represent coal districts that I really admire the people that whatever we say about climate change, right. coal miners are the one who started it. Right. Uh, or, you know, we've got it. So how did that experience impact or did it impact how you feel about legislation moving forward on climate change and, and energy issues? Because I see that the House Climate Crisis Action Plan includes nine of your bills that you've sponsored. Did that experience impact or change the way you look at legislation related to climate change and how you work on it? It, it definitely had an effect in this respect. We have to acknowledge mm -hmm. those of us who are strong uh, advocates for aggressive action on climate change. We have to acknowledge that there is going to be some dislocation from that as we transition. Okay. And that real people who have depended on a way of life are going to be affected. Now, a lot of those impacts are occurring totally independent of legislation, like the price of natural gas has really displaced a lot of coal. But the point here is that those of us who advocate for significant change have to be champions for those folks that have been in the mines and are gonna be affected. And we have to make certain that there's, as part of our effort, we really include significant assistance uh, for the transition and the impacts of this uh, change that is going on in our country right now. So I think, you know, that doesn't take away the, the battles that we have. But what it does is it conveys that I really do care about your concerns about the people you represent. Right. Because you know, I'll ask them to care about our dairy farmers. Right. So it, it, it's affected me in that I have become a big champion. In fact, 
David and I uh, were the leaders in uh, the house to restore the healthcare benefits that had been taken away from those coal miners. So we worked oh, like wow. this. Wow. Restoring those healthcare benefits that the miners uh, were entitled to. Right. Uh, right. And, and that's a way where if people see, if colleagues see that, hey, you're not after their community and you respect the people they represent, then we might have a big debate about what the EPA should be doing right. or what our policy should be. But at least it's not about trying to attack the Americans they represent, which would be very upsetting for any of us because you start attacking dairy farmers here, I'd be upset. Well, well, here's a concern I've heard from some Republicans who do want to be part of the climate change conversation or the energy efficiency conversation moving forward. Somebody who I know that you've spent time with, David Schweikert in, right. in Arizona, he, he recently said to me that over the past few months, at one point, he was part of a conversation on climate change and had proposed some carbon capture ideas, some technology, and was sort of greeted by, um, I guess, some Democrats in the room by saying, but that's our issue. You're a Republican. What are you doing? That kind of thing. Is there an effort on the part of Democrats to bring more Republicans into the conversation and allow them ownership of ideas related to energy efficiency and carbon capture and helping the climate? Because I think some of them feel left out. Well, that's on us because my view is that uh, whether it's David or me, uh, David Schweiker or me, if it's a good idea, let's go. Right. Let's do it. Okay. So if you've got something that can contribute to reducing carbon emissions uh, and strengthen our economy, <clears throat> let's do it. And in fact, you know, when I was doing the Homes Act, and Dave McKinley was my co-sponsor. We were in the majority, and I went around and saw almost every Republican on the committee and asked them for ideas on it. Uh, it was Joe Barton was the he was the chair then, uh, or the ranking member, mm -hmm. and I got a number of good ideas from them, and I put them in the bill, and it, it then ended up getting a little political. So even though they they a lot of them voted against the overall bill, but I still thought it was a worthwhile effort for me to get input from Republican colleagues and then not condition my inclusion on them being able to say they'll vote for the bill where they had other reasons that they couldn't, but improve the bill with their ideas. And it set a different tone. Are you encouraging your fellow Democrats to do something similar? Because what's been so revelatory in these conversations is that bipartisanship is happening on Capitol Hill. Oh my gosh, you know, stop the presses. This is happening. We're not as divided as we seem on Twitter. And I guess the question is, are you encouraging other Democrats in the party just to work with Republicans or to work across ideological spectrum in your party? Because I mean, as we've seen with AOC and Abigail Spanberger, both in the same party, but you can come together on issues where you agree. Well, that's right. And I, the answer is yes. I mean, that's just the style that we've had here in Vermont. I've had all my life. So I, I, uh, I'm always encouraging my colleagues to try to find common ground. And I think the disposition on many members is that they'd really like to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we're talking at each other, it, uh, it doesn't persuade anybody. That's the bottom line. I mean, the collegial uh, aspect this you mentioned, each of us gets elected. Each of us owes our first allegiance to the people we represent. 
And the, the district that David McKinley comes from, or Adam Kinzinger, is totally different than, than Vermont. Right. Uh, folks there have different priorities or different concerns or different ways of seeing it. Uh, but we're all part of the same country. Right. And we all face the same threat if we don't have affordable health care and affordable prescription drugs. We all face the same threat if we don't get on top of COVID. We all face the same threat if we don't have a relief package that helps folks in blue states or red states. So that's just true. Okay. And it's like self-evident to everyday people. And when they see uh, political folks uh, basically making arguments that they're better because they're red or they're blue, my experience, people turn off and they don't listen. And then Uh, they blame the media. Fake, you mean fake news. Fake right. news. This is not fake news. This is bipartisanship. I just I just love getting to know these members. And, and let me just ask you a question, if you'll indulge me. Related to your own district and your own state, you had mentioned casework in the beginning when we were talking. Tell right. me a little about, bit about the casework that your office is seeing and handles on a regular basis, because a major part of what members of Congress do relates to the very people that they represent in terms of veterans, disabilities, social security, EIP payments. Tell me about the casework that you tackle on a regular basis in your office. Well, one of the great gifts that a person who serves in Congress has is the opportunity to help the people that she or he represents. Mm -hmm. And folks call with all kinds of concerns. They can't get their social security. They didn't get their stimulus check. They've got a son or daughter who uh, needs to get back to the country and there's some uh, visa issue. My, uh, uh, the, we've got great cheesemakers here and they were threatened with uh, the possibility that they wouldn't be able to use wood boards to uh, age their cheese. Whoa. Uh, Paul Ryan and I worked that out. This is a few years ago. I <laughs> went to Paul Ryan and said, Paul, you know, he's Wisconsin and one of the things that I can never tolerate about Paul is he was always bragging that Wisconsin cheese was better than Vermont cheese, which is we know is that's a fake claim. <laughs> but we had a common cheese problem and we got together and worked that out. So the wood boards were able to be used in Wisconsin and in Vermont. And the point is that that was an example of constituents having a problem that had to get intervention. Uh, in order to solve it, and we did. So it's a combination of that, that, a range of the issues that come up for people where if you serve in Congress, you may be able to uh, take an action that solves it. And it's a, it's a wonderful feeling. Uh, and I think most members of Congress uh, really do feel that the constituent service opportunity they have right. uh, is really a, a wonderful aspect of the job that we're able to do. Let me ask you about one more aspect of that constituent service aspect, military service academy appointments. How does your office, because we're coming up to Veterans Day, and it's sort of top of my, if I was a young person and I'm thinking, hey, I'd like to go to West Point or Annapolis, what's the process like in Congressman Welch's office? If I live in Burlington, Vermont, and I say I want to serve my country, what is that process like for you guys? Well, it, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, first of all, it's a really bigger, big, uh, big effort on the part of these young people who are inspiring uh, because they all know they have to have a good academic record. Most of them play sports and all of them are engaged in some form of community service. Right. And what they would do is contact my office and then we would send them 
the information they need to provide us. And then we will uh, have someone who meets with them and then we'll make our recommendations uh, about their application to the academy. At the end of the day, the academy makes the decision. But one of the uh, parts of this that has been wonderful is that Senator Leahy has for years had a tradition over the Christmas holiday of uh, having a reception with uh, Bernie and me and all of the candidates for the academies and their parents. Oh, wow. Uh, well, it's only in Vermont, you know, we're all together. That's where the one district where Bernie and Patrick and I each have uh, the opportunity to make these recommendations. We all get together with the families and uh, I look forward to it uh, every single year, right around Christmas. Oh, wow. Well, that's, I guess it might be a little bit different this year with COVID. How has COVID impacted your district or how has it impacted the state? Where are you guys right now? Well, uh, first of all, it's impacted everybody everywhere. In, in, and uh, we're very fortunate here. And I, uh, Governor Scott has done a tremendous job uh, on taking this really seriously and taking measures to protect us. Uh, Vermont has the lowest COVID rate in the country. Uh, it's rising right now in Vermont, just as it is all around the country. Mm -hmm. And he's encouraging, we're all encouraging to remind ourselves of that importance of wearing the mask and the social distancing. Right. But it's had a huge impact uh, because even as we have a low coronavirus rate, the challenges of having kids in school, uh, the economic uh, challenges for like our restaurants, these young entrepreneurs who really can't operate anything close to normal until we get that vaccine distributed and, uh, and, and out there. Right. Uh, it's had a huge impact. It's had a huge impact on uh, uh, our state finances. Uh, so that relief package that we passed back in March, bipartisan, by the way, negotiated between uh, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader McConnell, that was an essential lifeline. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're unfortunately stalled in getting the second installment that I know we all need. Uh, How optimistic but, are you that that will happen before the end of the lame duck session? You know, I just don't know. I know it needs to happen, but I, you know, to be my honest answer is uh, I know it needs to happen, but I really don't know whether it will uh, because it can't happen like that. I mean, all it takes is uh, basically uh, President Trump uh, to uh, I think say what he is willing to do and, and McConnell to do the same. And obviously we'd have to make some adjustments from our original package, right. House Democrats. But the things that we need in it, if we keep it simple, we need more unemployment for people who have lost that. We need to protect small businesses with the PPP. We need right. to provide state and local aid. And obviously we need some help uh, in our healthcare sector to deal with uh, uh, the ongoing challenges in the spike. But basically, basically, you're saying it needs to get done. It absolutely needs to get done. And, it, you know, this is a case where it's not an, it's not about Democrats or Republicans trying to leverage this crisis to get something they want, because the things that we need in Vermont, in my district, are the same things that David Schweiker needs in his Arizona district. You right. know, small businesses there or here, it's the same. Folks who have lost right. unemployment there or here, it's the same the budgets in our state and local government. So every single one of us is threatened in our health by COVID. 
Well, Mr. Welch, I understand that you have to go because you have another call, even though I don't want to let you go because I want to hear more stories. Yeah. Maybe in the future I can hear more stories. But I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me and, and sharing what you have shared with me and, and my listeners because people want to know what Congress is like and they want to hear from the people who are actually working across the aisle and among their party to get it done. So I really, really appreciate it. You know, it's my pleasure. It was really nice talking with you. Thank you. It was nice talking to you too. And we'll see you back in DC eventually. Yeah, bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye. <laughs> that was Peter Welch of the entire state of Vermont. A big thanks to Lincoln Peak for setting up the interview. And thank you for listening. Tony Mitri is our editor. Julian Soler is our producer. For any questions, comments, and suggestions, please message me on Twitter at Molly Hooper or at Article One Podcast. You can email me at molly at article1podcast.com. On the next episode, I talk with a key Republican on the House Administration Committee who represents the land of Lincoln. Rodney Davis says Abe himself lives in the district, given that Lincoln's tomb and Lincoln's home is in this central Illinois district. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks.